Welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. My name is James, and once again, I'll be taking you through three of the biggest stories the Empire Center has been covering on our blog. We'll start with some news from the Empire Center. We, along with New Yorker's Family Research Foundation, have sued Attorney General Letitia James over ongoing First Amendment violations over at the OAG connected to confidential charitable donor records. Empire Center has filed multiple freedom of information law requests seeking information on the Attorney General's document retention and destruction policies. And thus far, the inadequate responses have failed to demonstrate that donors' rights under the First Amendment are being protected. On the research front, a new Empire Center report details alarming truancy trends in New York City's public schools, finding that 40% of students were chronically absent or missed at least 10% of school days. The report breaks out average daily attendance and chronic absenteeism data by grade level, demographic group, and borough, providing an in-depth look at who is attending school in New York and who is chronically absent. And finally, on the legislative front, a state Senate committee recently approved legislation weakening the ability of local government and school officials to discipline workers by extending a tenure-style privilege to virtually every public employee outside of New York City. This new policy would require agencies and municipalities to hire an arbitrator anytime they want to discipline an employee. And given the time needed to prepare for a hearing, oversee proceedings, and write a decision, it means that even the smallest village or town would be looking at thousands of dollars in arbitration costs anytime it needed to discipline, not even terminate, an employee. As always, you can find these stories and more on our website, empirecenter.org. And now we'll move on with the rest of the episode. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back to Messages of Necessity. I'm here with Daniel and Peter Arbini. We're talking about um, their family's experience during the COVID pandemic. Daniel, your father was sick, he was in the hospital, and he got moved to a nursing home around the time that Governor Cuomo's in now infamous order came down. Yes. Tell us about your experience with that. So March 25th comes, the administration tells us Cuomo's forcing them to take COVID positive patients. And we were, we, we, we didn't understand. No one, my, what, eight-year-old daughter didn't understand. Right? They locked us out of the nursing homes. They locked us out of the hospitals to prevent COVID. Because your father didn't have COVID, but you knew that there was COVID coming into the facility. Right. Was in. Guaranteed it was coming in. They had no choice, so they had to take it. So we worked tirelessly to get them out. And it took over a week. We finally got them home. Unfortunately, he contracted COVID in the nursing home. We got him home. And, a little and just to get by that point, you got him in the nursing home because nobody in your family had COVID and you didn't have exposure anywhere else. Correct. So while you can't prove it came from the nursing home, you do know that nobody else you knew who came in contact with him had COVID. Correct. Nobody yeah. had COVID. We were all clean. We got tested. Thankfully, they were just able to get testing at that point. It was still rare. So we were, we were clean, we brought him home, we did our best. Our best, unfortunately, with COVID just wasn't good enough. And April 21st, um, the weekend before April 21st, he was getting very congested the week before. I called his doctor, his doctor said, ah, he might have COVID. Um, 
and we got him tested Monday. Twelve hours, about twelve hours later, he died. Twelve hours later, we got the test results, and Daddy passed away from COVID. On top of that, if that wasn't bad enough, that week we had four family, three other family members die from COVID. That were close friends, two cousins, and my uncle right around the corner. It was a, it was a traumatic week for our family, and if you remember, we couldn't even mourn. The way I put it, it's callous, but that's what they forced us is they die, throw them in a box, throw them in the dirt. You can't mourn, you can't be there. They're rushing you. And you had a limit of 10 people. We're outdoors burying somebody. It was just, it was just, it was horrific. And, right. and, there, and, there, and so this is a story that tens of thousands of New Yorkers have, not specifically the same, but people lost someone. It's hard to come across somebody who lived here who didn't know somebody who was dying on what seemed like a weekly basis. And it, the farther you get away from it, the farther removed it feels, but it was real and it was scary. So um, so you had this traumatic loss, losses in your family, and as did a lot of people. Three, three years ago last week. Sure. And so, um, but that wasn't the end of it for you. So then, then what? We, you know, thankfully the canary in the coal mine. Um, Cuomo had asked, our former governor had asked the nursing homes to report suspected deaths from COVID. And all the nursing homes except for one reported like China. Oh, five years, seven there. Our nursing home, Cabo Hill Health Center, was brave enough to report truthfully. They said, I think it was 55 out of 300 beds. And the media descended on them almost with pitchforks. Burn it down, how bad, how evil. So my brother calls me and says, Daniel, maybe go around and talk to them. I said, we're all pitched in front of them. So I went around the corner and I started advocating. I started speaking to the reporters. It would take almost an hour with each reporter saying, no, you're not looking at it. Because they didn't see what we saw. They didn't see and know, they didn't even know about the much. He basically went around the corner to support the nursing home. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's, he's missing that with the reporters. And that's what they were, they wanted us to be angry at, them. at the nursing home. And we weren't in, in, in reality, reality the nursing home didn't make those decisions. That's correct. They followed an emergency order. Yeah. And what they weren't, they weren't doing any investigation other than that number. And it was scary because it was even, it was almost as many or more than what happened in Washington state. So it took a lot of time, but every one of the reporters, the Wall Street Journal, News One, CBS, the list goes on. For months I would meet with starting that that day. And they all started to look and say, wow, there's something to this. We were giving them facts. Yeah. And they didn't have facts. And it was all hidden. And then I started talking to doctors in a lot of the hospitals. Thankfully, I have a lot of friends from working and being part of the community hospital, a lot of friends in a lot of different institutions. And we started getting all these facts of what's happening. Uh, and we were able to use that. Uh, and then we got to the point where we needed real facts. And the only other institution that was fighting for information was the Empire Organization. I called Bill. He called me right back. Bill Hammond uh, was a beacon of light for in 2020, um, there was the government was shut down. Yeah, there was no one to talk to. There was no one to get information from. 
my brother Danny read something about Bill Hammond, Vampire something. He called Bill called him back when no one was either picking the phone up at work or returning calls. Yeah. So uh, we are indebted to the Empire Center uh, for responding to our calls in 2020. Well, I, I appreciate that, and, and we openly welcome you into the Bill Hammond Fan Club, of which I'm one of the founding members. <laughs> um, so, so you, so you were not only sort of gathering all of this information, but you guys were also working on getting it out there. We were doing two things at that time. We were getting the information out there, and I mean, I could sit on the stoop, and, and then it started getting. We started then getting the ability to speak to politicians. But before that, and in between, we were also Peter had the foresight to say, "Hey, this is happening. I'm going to buy a lot of." business. Then we realized the police station, our nursing home, the nursing homes were the offices. Hospitals, colleges, we right. donated masks. All of it, right. Thousands and but, thousands. But, yeah. Thousands to support and help people. Post that in passing away. Well, one of the one of the things that we are very proud of is that we were one of the few families that were able to remove their parents yes. from the nursing home. So we are sitting in my father's living room, uh, which turned into a hospital room, and we are sitting almost in the same spot where he died. So he was born in this house, uh, he lived here for 89 years, and he passed in this house. So it is a bit surreal that we're here doing this uh, in front of this wall that we put together, um, but we were one of the fortunate families yes. to have the wherewithal, the effort, the energy, getting HEPA filtration, having N95 masks by the hundreds in March, in April of 2020. So we were fortunate. And when Cobble Hill Nursing Home announced 55 deaths, my father passed. The meteor, Danny did all the talking at that time. I was saying this. So, so getting to know you guys, I have a hard time believing that he did all the talking. 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 No, he did all the talking. I, I was not uh, ready to be out of my shell. Uh, but 55 deaths, and then I read there were 600 nursing homes. And I was like, Cabo Nursing Home is in a, in a very affluent neighborhood. It's prime real estate. They own the property. If they had trouble, and they had trouble, how about the other five, 600 nursing homes? Right. I was like, there's no way it's 3,000, 4,000 dead if they were 55. Even if you do 55 times 600. Like, so the numbers never made sense to me. And that continued for the summer after my father died. And I kept saying they're lying. The numbers aren't right. There's no way those are the numbers. And it came to a point where we became more of activism. And that's a word I didn't even know. It didn't mean anything to me. I just wanted the truth. Um, and I was with... Donnie Tuckman in August of 2020. He's the CEO of Cabo Hill Nursing Home. And I talked about the failings of the federal city and state. They just couldn't communicate. Yeah. Everybody wanted to go their own bully pulpit. No one wanted to communicate. It didn't matter how many thousands died. This is what I said to him. He responds to me and goes, did you hear Governor Cuomo's writing a book? I said, writing a book? If he's writing a book, I'm going to put a coffin in front of your nursing home and I'm going to fill it with 6,500 pages of the because he's lying about the death. So 
went back to my office. 6,500 was the 6,200 was the official debt toll. Yeah. Well, well, it was 62. In August, it was 6,200. By October, when his book came out, they raised it to about 6,500. So 62, 65. Um, and then when he said it was, say, 6,500, and he sent 6,000 COVID patients in, I said, that delta is too close. Yeah. It's too close to be realistic. If you told me you sent in 1,000 and 6,000 people died, that's how COVID works. So then came the birth of the Montreal, because he was writing the book. Yeah. I never saw my father in a coffin. So this was my opportunity. Um, we sh- the coffin came rolling down the block. It was the first time I ever did anything like Very this. Very powerful word. We opened, we opened the coffin. I made 6,500 pages of his front cover. I dumped them in. And people came up to me who I didn't know. They, they, with tears in their eyes, can I put a picture of my mother in the coffin? I said, this isn't my coffin. This is all our coffins. And they filled it with their pictures. And I realized they died. They weren't able to celebrate their parents. Right. Because there was no burials, mercy meals, masses. Right. How many people? Church service. Same day, so that's, same that was the birth of this wall of this unusual background because I realized people wanted to display their parents in a celebration a celebrative way and the mock funeral was very powerful I did very little talking he did all the talking Um, and it just started a movement from that point forward that uh, we just couldn't stop because we asked for three things three years ago we wanted an apology we wanted to know the true death toll. And we wanted our father's death to count. And when will it count as a COVID death for nursing home? Three out of three are still zero. So, all right. Well, that, I mean, I think that's the right way to transition to the next part of this. But the, the story really begins when father got sick. You got to bring him home. You said you were lucky. Yes. I think that's being very generous. Your father passed away. What you didn't do is just sort of sit quietly inside and about it, figure out a way to let your voices out. You found hundreds and hundreds of people. This wall that you can see, if you're watching the podcast, you can see this wall behind us is filled with um, pictures of family members. Some of them are yours, some of them are people you don't know, some of them are friends. Um, and this is four of eight sections or two of four sections, yeah. half of it, right? Yes. Or whatever. So it, it's a it's a really impressive thing that sort of happened. Um, you shepherded it. But it happened on its own because people were looking for answers. And so where the Empire Center's path and your path crossed, as we've already talked about, is we both got onto this level and started to look for something's not right. The numbers aren't right. Um, and then you, we'd known that they weren't. Then we knew they weren't right. And so you kept this going for a little, for, well, and it's still going now. Um, but the next step for you was to really to push in and start working on that evidence um, at basically every level. So as you got into that, what did that look like initially as you started talking to politicians about these things? Um, it was, I, I argued with my brother three years ago. I was like, this is pretty simple. They're going to have an investigation. The governor, people died and the governor lied. That's as simple as it can be. And I was like, they're going to do an investigation. And my brother said to me, no, I, I, I think the only way, the only course is a lawsuit. Yeah. It's the only way for justice. And I was like, no, I don't believe that. So then I started writing letters, inviting uh, politicians, 
here to my father's house to meet with us. Um, and one after another, Tom DiNapoli came, Tish James came, uh, Jamani Williams came, uh, a governor, somebody who was running for governor, Lee Zeldin came, uh, Brad Lander has been to this house, who's the city controller now, he was a councilman then. Um, they were very respectful, they listened to us, they understood um, our plight, and our plight was, doesn't benefit us, this is, we just want the truth. Yeah. Um, and three years later, we still have no investigation with subpoena power. Uh, we got an apology from Governor Holcomb, we met her twice. It's just about taking responsibility. If there was a bridge accident, the bridge collapsed and five people died. If there was a train derailment and five people died. If there was a construction site where five people died, we'd have a thorough, full investigation across agencies. Sure. Because no one could die. We had a car crash, a limousine crash. Sadly, 20 people died. They had a full investigation. We're talking about thousands of people that died. And three years later, there was no oh, and, that, and that, so I think you make a good point on this in that, political or not, this sort of crosses that divide, right? And may, maybe it's because you've got Democrats in control of, of, of both houses and the governor's office. Maybe, maybe that's the reason. Um, that's being polite. Maybe it's... maybe That's from a Democrat. Maybe it's because um, there's a lot there to get through, maybe it's complicated, maybe it's hard. We all, we have a shared goal, and this is something we've been working on together anyways, of getting that right commission done. Um, but you did it what you thought was the right way, and it should be the right way, right? You reached out to your elected officials, you asked them to come talk to you about it, explain how they were going to do it, you advocated for what you thought was the right thing, and then as so many other New Yorkers know, that didn't happen. Um, so here we are. So the next step was, and there was a lawsuit. Tell us a little bit about that. Two things I want to mention. We've advocated at the city level, the state level, and the federal level. We've met with, testified before Congress, testified, in fact, before the New York Senate. We've testified to bring the truth to light. The the one thing I would like to say, too, we said this in our our assembly, state assembly testimony, was that Tom DiNapoli did an 18-month audit, which I thought was a very long time for an audit on nursing homes. He finally came out with the audit, and he wrote that uh, the Department of Health put impediments um, in blocking his audit and his auditors. And I thought to myself, the Department of Health is supposed to respond to a state audit. They didn't make program people available. They went and they asked the questions, when they finally did to the Department of Health. They wouldn't answer the questions. So when you don't answer a question somebody asks you, that means you're worried about liabilities. Well, that's that, where subpoena power comes so in. So this was bureaucracy getting in the way of, of, of having what could have been the investigation. So we, you know, we've talked about this before, the idea of having subpoena power for something that's going to be a commission like this. Why do you think that's so important? For subpoena power will compel people to answer truthfully. Where right now they don't. Even this they morning, don't answer. They don't answer. This may be a surprise, but sometimes in government, people are trying to protect themselves over doing their jobs. Not always, but it happens. So <laughs> it's a big surprise. So, so but it's a good point, right? Um, making sure that if the commission happens the right way, because there have been now at least two, right? yes. the, the governor has, has a, review. A, one, a review, a review, not an um, investigation. The, 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 
the controller has done one. Neither of them have or had subpoena power, and it's hard to know if you're getting the full truth, and based on what the controller can have said, you're probably not. So that's an important point. Um, so, so you filed a law. I that the AG, which was a revelation at the end of 2021, sorry, at the beginning of 2021, when they came out and said, oh no, 6,500 is wrong, it's at least 50% higher, that, that it's much higher than that. Because again, they were dealing with people that weren't giving you When you have the state control, state, after an 18 month law, and he concludes that New Yorkers will lie to at the highest levels of state government. That's a You have a lifelong Democrat stating that New Yorkers, in a time when all we wanted was the truth, yeah. we will lie to at the highest levels of state government. That automatically screams we need an investigation. And so far, the only one that has attempted to do that investigation is me. And that's ridiculous. Yeah. That's right. I get it. I, I mean, you know, it's, like, it's sort of like, Shrug your shoulders and resign yourself to like, oh, that's it. But that can't be it. And it's part of the reason we're having this conversation is because you guys have just not sat down and shut up. We haven't. Despite what you keep claiming, Peter. No, we haven't given up. So, so the events is really. The lawsuit. Yeah, about yeah lawsuit. no. So, you know, the Napoli's report comes out. The lawsuit. The Napoli's report yeah. comes out in January of 2022. Almost at the two-year mark with my father's death. So we we try to ride that wave. We again went to the politicians, we went to the news, and nothing moved. So there's a two-year statute of limitations on some some areas of law. I don't know the details, but two-year mark with my father's death was coming up. Even though the courts were closed, I'm like, yeah, it's only one way we're gonna get justice. I filed a federal lawsuit because pro se, pro se. The reason we went federal is there are many people who have tried state and, and other avenues, city and state, and it doesn't work. There is nothing you can do. Federal, it's called a 1983 suit. It, it literally, nobody, nobody can take away your right to is, is essentially what it boils down to. So I filed pro se because I I interviewed, we interviewed a lot of lawyers. Nobody got it. Mm-hmm. The truth isn't whether you want to put this in or not, you can. Most lawyers think cause and effect. They chase ambulances. I understand the cause. Now I can sue. We filed. Sue people that have insurance. Right. So nursing homes and hospitals, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what we did is we're playing a chess game. It's a chess match. It's not checkers. And most lawyers don't think this way. They aren't federally thinking. They're not constitutional lawyers. We eventually were able to find a great constitutional lawyer. And we have a New York State lawyer and others helping as they can. And we filed it pro se. The judge came back sympathetic, it seems to me, at least to the issue. And said, sorry, you can't file pro se if you want to do this a class action. What's critical is we're not doing this just for daddy. Daddy was a giver, and so are we. We're focused on the voices that are voices, all of them. We became the voices of the voices. Right. And that's our push. So I want to file a class action. And so they said, the judge said, no, you really need to get a lawyer. And she gave me more time to find a lawyer. 
but she didn't throw out the case. She didn't sit. She said, "Go get a lawyer and let's keep this going." We we filed our case against personally, because that's the way you have to file these cases against a former governor, Cuomo, a former Department of Health Commissioner Zucker, and Melissa DeRosa, who was the chief of staff. Why? Because those are the three players that, through our investigation, our timeline, had everything to do with this. They were the ones who were manipulating the data. They were the ones who were signing the orders. And they were the ones that also were hiding and calling us right-wing extremists. I, I will say on this podcast, I will announce, that I had nothing to do with the lawsuit. <laughs> and I am very proud. Everything else that you see the Arbini's name on, it has to do with <laughs> but the lawsuit is all him. Yeah. That's his avenue. I went a different route. Yeah. Because if you talk to lawyers, they don't want you talking to anybody. So I said, Danny, I don't want to talk to the lawyers. I'm going to continue the political route. I'm going to do what I do. You do what you do. Um, and I'm hoping eventually um, to uh, separate from <laughs> it would be yes, really nice. Can you your brother? No, I mean, at least in, in, you have no idea what it is to try to be somewhere with him by the minute, by the hour on a national television show and be ready. It's it's an impossible thing. He's but he did the lawsuit. I'm very proud that he did the lawsuit, and I I, I it is it's a long shot. Like like I try to tell people, we're in a U boat, and they're in a government funded battleship. Yes, you know we're in this little tiny U-boat, and they're in this battleship, and it all comes down to I believe is the governor shielded? Yes. Is he shielded from lying? No. And that's the key. So that's the question I was just going to ask: is the the crux of this suit is really about what? What is the what's the action on this? The the I'm sorry when you by act the crux of the suit is they deprive daddy. 10,000 other people of life. That's the crutch. And it was not something that was unforeseen. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't, it, it wasn't extreme. The test is, is this something so egregious that everybody's shocked by it? Shock conscience is, I think, the term, the legal term. Does it shock the conscience? Well, if my five-year-old, my eight-year-old, five-year-old says, why would they do that? Given how, for years, everybody said, you never do that. From the very beginning, it shocks the conscience. Yeah. So that's a great segue into what you just mentioned is the timeline that you've been working on. Uh, luckily, you don't have a real job, so you have all day, every day, <laughs> dedicated to putting this thing together. Um, I joke, you do work full-time. You both do. Um, so this you're doing out of passion in your spare time. Yes. Spare time you create. This timeline is an impressive document. It was just 30 seconds. Uh, The timeline was just to document when the ship arrived, when the ship was allowed to take COVID patients, when the Javits was set up, when was it supposed to be? This is the Red Cross ship that came from New York. The the federal government sent the Red Cross ship. Um, It was 1,000 beds. It was 2,500 beds of the Javits. Why weren't they used? Besides the timeline, I went into a lot of foils and foiled about a lot of information. But the timeline is about 47 pages, and it has uh, north of 420 links. Everything is, uh, what did you, what word did you say? I say sourced. 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 Everything is linked and sourced. Uh, Because the idea was, there's lots of information 
about government's response to this. Not all of it is sourced or annotated in a way where you can sort of show it, right? And, and the narrative continues to get away from people when we talk about what happened. And as you've explained it to me, it was, I know this guy said this thing. And so the timeline becomes a reference document to go That's back right. and be able to remember exactly what was said at what time, by whom, what day, to who, right? Yeah. So that's all. That is a very important part of this because otherwise that timeline doesn't exist, and you forget the small details that are very, very important. So you get to the end, win, lose, or draw in the lawsuit. Something's going to happen. I think we all are starting to feel increasingly hopeful that maybe something will happen on the commission side. What's a win? What is what's a successful outcome of what has been hundreds of hours of work and agony for you guys and your family? I mean, we have similar views on this. The biggest win is it never happens. There's always going to be another pandemic, whether it's 20 years, 30, 50. We don't know, but it's going to happen. And our state should never allow the same response. Because remember, we spent, I don't know how much, almost a billion dollars on a pandemic plan. It was a pandemic flu plan. And Cuomo just threw that all out, and he just became pandemic doctor. And we can't ever let that happen again. We can't. We need to think about 12,000 plus people. Ever the real number is. Well, and that's so, so people were going to die. Yes. More people died than needed to die. Correct. That's what you're trying to prevent. That's a successful outcome. Well, I, I have a, I'm a little slightly different than uh, I think that I want to understand much more. That's a win were they really following the CDC guidelines? Where did it come from? He locked us out on March 13th and he sent COVID in on March 25th. It's never made any mathematical sense. Then he says he was following the CDC guidelines, but does that make sense that he was following the Trump CDC guidelines? He defended it, then lied about it for 10 months, and then froze when the Department, Department of Justice asked him what the death toll was. Yeah. He thinks he froze, Melissa DeRosa froze when she got the DOJ oh. letter. How about us? When we got the March 25th order, they, we froze. I think um, one other note, just for our listeners to understand, and I think you guys have said this, but it bears repeating, you're not professional advocates. You haven't been involved in or working in government issues at any point. This is a great example of what can happen, even though we're still on the path, um, when we create some more civic engagement with people. When something happens to them, they get involved in their government, they start to push back. You found a way to get in front of legislators and our state elected officials and Congress to go testify, to bring a lawsuit on your own. Um, it's hard and it's a lot of work. And if you care enough, it's worth it at the end of the day. Um, so we'll leave it, I think, with that and say thank you. Um, you paid us a nice compliment at the beginning. I think ours is twice as much back to you. It's impressive what you're doing. It's inspiring. We're glad to see it. We're glad that you're going to continue to push on. We hope that we get to keep walking this path with you. Um, and we look forward to seeing you all again on the next episode. So thank you so much. Thank you. Hello, my name is Kyle Davis. I'm the Director of Public Affairs for the Empire Center. And I'm, I have the pleasure of sitting down with uh, Empire Center Senior Fellow for Health Policy, Bill Hammond. How are you doing today, Bill? Very good, Kyle. Thank you. So last week, you had the opportunity to speak before the Congressional Select Subcommittee on the coronavirus pandemic. Do you want to give us a little bit of details of what that was all about? 
So the subject was uh, the the, Mar the the Cuomo administration's uh, much discussed March 25th policy from March 2020, requiring nursing homes to accept coronavirus positive patients from hospitals. This was in the thick of the pandemic. A handful of other states had similar policies. And so this committee was kind of digging into um, how and why those policies were enacted and what it, what impact they had on nursing home residents during the pandemic. Um, it's, um, it's a subject that I've looked into very closely as somebody who followed New York's pandemic. Um, and so I was invited to testify. Um, the, the short version of my testimony is that this, this policy did have did make a bad situation worse for residents of nursing homes. It probably wasn't the only, it clearly wasn't the only source of coronavirus in nursing homes. But you were you were taking people who were known to be infected and moving them into facilities with very vulnerable populations. And uh and it, it made a bad situation worse. So one of one of the questions that rises to the forefront is why is this timely now? So it's three years after the pandemic. Why um, why were they holding the hearing? Well, this this committee was started um, while Democrats were still in control of the House of Representatives, and so when the Republicans took control um, earlier this year, that's correct, right? <laughs> they. Um, they had a list of topics they wanted to dig into that they felt the Democrats hadn't looked at closely enough, and this is one of them. Um, I mean, I think it's fair to say that they they also have their eye on kind of the political scene, the these uh, the policy that you know, Cuomo was a Democrat, and some of the other governors who had similar policies were Democrats, and so the uh, this was an opportunity to remind people that that um, there were also bad, you know whatever you thought about the Trump administration's response, that there was also um, bad decisions that were made by Democrats at the state level. So you mentioned congressional Republicans as being the folks that were kind of championing this at this point. Um, who, who specifically um, was holding the hearing? So it was the select subcommittee on the coronavirus pandemic. The chairman, that's Brad Winstrip of Ohio. He's a, he's a physician himself. There are actually quite a few physicians who were who were members of this subcommittee. Um, um, one of the it, it's uh, this select subcommittee is affiliated with the Committee on Oversight and Accountability, and their job is to kind of look at how well government is doing. It's you know, how well it's functioning. And in this case, it's looking at how well state government is functioning. Um, the uh, One of the highlights of the hearing was a member from New York, from Staten Island, Nicole Malitakis. Um, she had an extra long um, opportunity to, to speak and to ask questions. She focused on a recent revelation of emails related to the USS Comfort, the hospital ship that was brought into New York City around you know, during the worst of the crisis. And in, in those emails, a, a, a Navy official was pleading with the state um, saying, listen, we don't have any patients or we have very few patients. We wanna be helpful. Can you send us more patients? Um, 
and that that was um, that kind of highlighted uh, a contradiction that that the state felt that hospitals were so overcrowded that it had to move you know infected patients into nursing homes but it wasn't using these other alternatives it wasn't using the the hospital ship and it wasn't using javits and that is something of a mystery why those facilities weren't uh, used more than they were. They were they were mostly empty even during the worst of the crisis. So, Bill, one of the things that you mentioned in your testimony um, is that you said along the lines that even viewed in the best light, they were trying to remove a hospital crisis by creating a nursing home crisis. Do you want to explain what you were talking about when you when you brought that up? So, this policy was issued on March twenty fifth, twenty twenty. If you can. Uh, turn your mind back to what things were like right then. That was only a few days after the state went into the full lockdown known as New York Pause. And the governor at his daily briefings had for some time been talking about how how the outlook for hospitals and how rapidly they were filling up, how hard-pressed they were. In some cases, a few hospitals became um, overwhelmed, overcrowded. And they had projections indicating that it was going to get much worse before it came to a peak. Um, Some of the worst case scenarios showed that the number of people needing hospital care for COVID was going to be, you know, double the number, the total number of hospital beds in the state. And so they were scrambling on many fronts to create temporary hospital capacity. They had ordered hospitals to set up as many beds as they could in any vacant space that they had. They had shut down elective procedures to clear those beds. They had opened, they'd opened the Javits Center, they brought in the hospital ship. They'd opened temporary hospitals in uh, various SUNY facilities and empty nursing homes. So they were they were making a lot of efforts to clear hospital space. And during this time, the um, a hospital association approached the governor's office and said, listen, we have a cohort of patients who have recovered from COVID. They're stable, but they're still testing positive or they're still showing signs of being infected with COVID. They don't belong in a hospital. They're they're ready to leave, but they can't go home. They're too frail to go home. Normally, we would send them to nursing homes and the nursing homes aren't willing to take them because they have COVID. Can you help us with that? And the state's response was to issue this order. The health department issued it. Um, They consulted with the hospitals, obviously it was the hospital's idea, but they had not consulted with the nursing homes. And if they had, I think the nursing homes would have pushed back and said, listen, this is a terrible idea. We should not, we should be trying, doing everything we can to keep COVID out of our facilities. And this is introducing it in some cases. Absolutely, Bill. I think you described it perfectly. Um, do you think that there is any way to help prevent these type of poor decision makings in times of crisis going forward? Is there any lessons to be learned, anything going forward that we can implement? Well, as I tried to make the case in my testimony, this was, you can't view this policy in isolation. It came at the end of a series of policy failures that were all interlinked. And so, you, you, they hadn't done enough advanced planning for what do we do when our hospitals become overcrowded. They had to, inv- they had to invent a bunch of solutions on the fly. 
they hadn't um, prepared nursing homes adequately for infection control. Uh, one strategy for doing that is to have a separate wing or even a separate building where you keep infected patients. That's something you would have wanted to try to do in February or early March, and they hadn't gotten to that because they hadn't, again, they hadn't planned ahead. They hadn't adequately stockpiled um, uh, personal protective equipment, PPE, such as masks and gloves and gowns. Um, the nursing homes would have been better equipped to handle infected patients if they'd had adequate PPE. Um, they didn't have good systems for detecting the pandemic, and so it it probably arrived in early February, but they didn't know about it until early March. And by that time, it had already spread beyond the point where it could be controlled. So if we if we really want to prevent a situation like the March 25th order, again, if we want, if we you you need to give officials better options, and those better options would include better information about who's infected and where. And and a better set of policies for handling infected patients. And, and uh, in, in a case where hospitals become overcrowded, you wanna have a game plan for what you're gonna do that doesn't include um, putting people in nursing homes. Absolutely. During the testimony, was there anything that came out from any of you, the colleagues that were on the panel that you found particularly interesting? You mentioned Congressman Congresswoman uh, Molly Otakis, her comments. Is there anything else that kind of stands well, out? So, um, uh, another witness was Janice Dean, um, a Fox News meteorologist whose in laws died um, during this period in um, assisted living facilities, I believe. Um, and then there was a woman named uh, Vivian Zayas, who's from Voices for Seniors. She was similarly. She had uh, loved ones who died in a nursing home. And then there was David Grabowski, a, a, a professor of health policy at Harvard Medical School. He was invited by the Democrats. Um, he didn't dispute the idea that this was a bad policy, but he tried to emphasize that there were other, other things that were being done that, that contributed to the crisis in nursing homes. A, th a moment from the hearing that stood out to me, though, came from uh, um, a Democrat on the uh, on the committee, uh, Congressman Barra from California. He's a doctor and a former county uh, medical official, and he he like like most of the members, he began his questioning with pretty extended remarks, but his seemed to be extemporaneous, off the cuff, and he said, you know, there was no doubt in any of our minds that this was extremely dangerous or the kind of frail elderly people in nursing homes. And I can't for the life of me understand why anybody would have thought it was a good idea to send infected patients into that environment. And he just seemed um, shocked by what he was hearing. And so he, he didn't make any effort to deflect what had happened or to downplay it. And and he asked me whether there were any ongoing investigations of how this had happened in New York and who was responsible. And I had to say I wasn't aware of any ongoing investigations. So I thought that it was interesting that uh, some of the other Democrats were trying to deflect. Um, they were trying to pivot to say, listen, 
this doesn't, even if this was a mistake, there were other worse mistakes made by the Trump administration. He wasn't trying to do that. He was he was focusing on the topic at hand and, and acknowledging that it was a bad idea and, and sort of asking what can be done to get to the bottom of it and prevent it from happening again. So in conclusion, Bill, is there any one specific takeaway or is that kind of the, the main takeaway there? I mean, I think the thing that the thing that this highlights for me is that we are now what more than three years out from this really terrible disaster that hit the state, one of the worst natural disasters in our history. It killed tens of thousands of people. About a third of them were nursing home residents. And we as a state have not adequately excavated what happened, what went wrong, not just for accountability purpose, not just for identifying wrongdoing, but more importantly, for learning lessons so that we can be better prepared for the future. We we knew that this virus was coming uh, and we didn't, we weren't adequately prepared. We know other viruses are on the horizon. We don't know where they when they're going to arrive. And the time to get ready is now. And I, I frankly, I don't see any reason to think that we're better prepared now than they were than we were in March of 2020. Absolutely. I agree with your assessment there, Bill. I, I encourage everyone who's listening to check out uh, the full testimony on the Empire Center website. Thank you for listening to this segment of Messages of Necessity. Until next time. For more news and analysis, visit our website and sign up for email updates at empirecenter.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Empire Center.